Hello there, and welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew. I'm joined today by Scott. Well, hello there. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about some classic children's films. Uh, nostalgia for and influenced by different eras comes and goes. And the time period we are focusing on for this episode has certainly been yearned for and revisited before. But for some reason, though probably the oft-observed 30-year cycle, the 80s are particularly big right now. In the last few years, we've seen reboots of 1980s classics like Ghostbusters, related sequels such as Blade Runner 2049, remakes such as It, old but new films like the actually thoroughly entertaining postmodern Ode Turbo Kid, and straight-up 1980s reference-listing rubbish like Steven Spielberg's insipid Ready Player One, <laughs> based on Ernie Klein's appalling 1980s fetishising <laughs> book. Or at least a somewhat less rubbish, but also 1980s fetishising Bandersnatch. Arguably, the most prominent of these 1980s mythologising properties is Netflix's popular Stranger Things, a peon to 1980s childhood and pop culture, a childhood that just so happens to be ours albeit another side of the Atlantic. And so, with us being children of the 80s, and it being such a big thing right now, we thought it might be interesting to revisit some of the classic children's movies of that era, some of which directly influenced Stranger Things in particular, even in casting. While we often try to mix in non-English language and non-USA titles into our themed episodes as much as possible, that wasn't on the cards here because A, at 5 or 6 I doubt we were big into reading subtitles, hmm. And because, B, our childhood viewing largely came from Hollywood. C'est la vie. We will be looking at two children's literary adaptations of books from that general era soon, one of which is animated. But for now, we have selected seven live-action films from a surprisingly narrow mid-80s window. (laughs) However, we are not doing this for nostalgia, but rather to see if these films still make the greatest adults, and 30 years further into the future that is Space Year 2019 to boot. I, certainly, would contend that a good film is a good film, but would also contend that children know jack shit and have terrible taste. <laughs> so, which films still work? Seven films enter, one film leaves. There can be only one. Well, let's maybe not think too much about those particular 1980s films. No, especially not the one with the Scottish-Spanish-Egyptian and the French-Scotsman. And anyway, there could be seven that leave. Maybe. Who knows? Well, we knows, obviously, because we've seen the films and created our opinions already. So I should maybe shut up now and get to the business of telling you? <laughs> uh, I guess just before we do that, though, Scott, do you have any opening thoughts? Where are these films entering and where are they leaving? <laughs> uh, how are they entering and leaving? This is a very strange conceptual thunderdome you've created for us, and I'm on board with it. Um, well... For most of these, thanks to the wonders of my memory, I'm really coming to them fresh. (laughs) Even the ones I know I have seen, it's like, I can't really remember much of this. Um, So I'm more or less judging all of these as uh, from a tabula rasa. So we'll see how it goes. I don't actually have an awful lot of um, nostalgia for pretty much any of the films that we actually talked about of this list, because most of them I I either didn't see or didn't really make all that much of an impact. I guess I wasn't really a film kid. The films that I do remember seeing weren't these. The films that were sort of a, a huge part of Michelle's were the earlier stuff, like either uh, Star Wars or Indiana Jones and that sort of stuff. And I can yes. remember all that. And I can remember Bond films clearly as from from a kid. And I know, I know intellectually, I've seen, I've definitely seen at least half of these and probably seen the rest, but they never made much of a dent on me. With perhaps the the one exception being the uh, first one I actually speak of, which is uh, the Karate Kid, which is the one thing I think uh, 
that I seem to remember. There's one film of these that I could have spoken about quite easily without having seen it again, even though I've not seen it in an awfully long time. But that is the one film that I actually do remember quite mm-hmm. clearly and all the rest of them, eh, not so much. Yeah, actually, the only one of these I don't recall seeing as a child was the second one we'll cover, which is The Neverending Story, mm-hmm. which ends. Yes. So there's a lie right for a start. Yeah. Um, there's also a Neverending Story 2 and 3. How, how can it be a second or third part to something that doesn't end? Mm, mm, liars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, the rest I did watch. Almost all of them I can remember a fair bit of. I am blessed with a really good memory. I'm sometimes also cursed with a really good memory. Uh, <laughs> but it's not, I didn't have any particular nostalgia for these. Again, I, I'm not sure I had all that much nostal- nostalgia anyway. Um, strong memories, but not necessarily nostalgia for a lot of things I saw in childhood, just things that I know I liked. It's not the same yeah. as nostalgia, of course. But like you, it's things like that some Indiana Jones Bond films, certainly. They seem to be on TV, all the bank holidays yeah, and yeah, Christmas yeah. and stuff, and Star Wars. Yeah. But certainly the Bond films, also not kids' films. Star Wars, I guess really it's a family film, but it's, yeah. it feels a bit separate from these, and I very specifically didn't include it, because I'm sure at some point we will come to Star Wars <sighs> in, in our... Um, several millennia long list of potential topics that we are currently sitting <laughs> on top of uh, uh, these were picked because of the era very much and ones that are that I'm aware of being fairly well regarded or have in some way entered into or influenced pop culture mm. and one film that I picked because of another podcast actually and I'll give a shout out to the fellows over at the Perfect Waste of Time podcast because they watch the final film we're going to cover and they like kind of opened my eyes to how much not kids film that kids film was <laughs> I wanted to revisit that I feel I've lost the point I was making somewhere I think I was saying that <laughs> uh, yeah they weren't chosen for nostalgia more just some way representative of that era of our childhood and with you know with the 80s being so big just down that's when we did our our starting of school and beginning to become the wonderful wonderful people that we are now yes absolutely <laughs> So, will we begin then? As you mentioned, the Karate Kid, Scott. Well, yes. I suppose, will I begin, given that yes. I, I will be introducing <laughs> it? Will I begin, Drew? Yes. Yes, I should. <laughs> Thank you, Drew. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. You sound like the turtle from the never-ending story. <laughs> oh, that's oh, that's a nasty thing to say. You are, my <laughs> You don't look like him. <laughs> As you probably guessed by now, first up we have 1984's The Karate Kid. Itself already the subject of a pretty poor remake. Uh, in which, you know, they've moved the action to China, which is not where karate's from, but okay. Added Jackie Chan, probably a good thing. And then added in a tree in the form of Jaden Smith. <laughs> uh, but no, we're talking very much about the original here, which, now this will shock you, is the tale of a kid who does karate. Where do <laughs> they get these names? The titular karate kid is 15-year-old Daniel LaRusso, played by the then 22-year-old Ralph Macchio, Though at least he has a gangliness more appropriate to a teenager that makes this less egregious than is often the case. Hmm. Who has recently moved from New Jersey to California to allow his mother to begin a new career. His first day goes well, as he meets a friendly neighbour of his age, and then meets the beautiful Ali, Elizabeth Shue, at a beach party. Things start to go rapidly downhill though, after he gets on the wrong side of Ali's jealous ex-boyfriend Johnny, a young Boris Johnson. <laughs> and makes instant and mortal enemies of Johnny and his group of vicious karate black belts from the Cobra Kai dojo. 
The Cobra Kai is run by John Kreese, Cagney and Lacey's Martin Cove, a Vietnam vet and all-around super-classy guy who encourages cheating, bullying and the intimidation and assault of teenagers and pensioners. <laughs> and together these people make Daniel's life, well, pretty much a living hell. Unsurprising then, that Daniel is soon pleading with his mother to return to New Jersey and bemoaning his pain-filled existence. To the rescue comes the enigmatic Mr. Miyagi, Noroyuki Patmorita, best known at that point as Arnold in Happy Days, but destined from this point on to be forever remembered for the Karate Kid. Miyagi, a Japanese immigrant who earned the Medal of Honor in the US Army, is now the maintenance man at the LaRusso's apartment complex, and he takes on the extra duty of maintaining Daniel's life and functioning body. He arranges a ceasefire with Kreese in which the Cobra Kai thugs agree to leave Daniel San in peace to allow him to train for the All-Valley Karate Championship and then beat him up there instead. Karate expert Miyagi then begins to train Daniel using unorthodox, almost certainly useless in the real world, amusing techniques like the now famous Wax On Wax Off. In true underdog story style, Daniel survives to claim victory. While much of the Karate Kid is structurally if not cliched, then at least well-worn. The fact that it's helmed by Rocky's award-winning director, John G. Avildsen, gives it more polish than many similar stories, and Avildsen even manages to inject a fair bit of humour and fun into the training montages. Though there's not much that he, or Macho can do to stop the pivotal crane kick looking awkward and silly. <laughs> JCVD performing a roundhouse kick, this is not... <laughs> Much of the film rests naturally on Machio's shoulders and fortunately he's a pretty engaging screen presence. He has a bit of a smart guy swagger, but it's seen early on that it's all surface and that underneath he's a vulnerable, scared, and a pretty regular and a decent guy. And Machio manages to transition well. Daniel's relationship with his mum also works well. Seen from the very beginning in a cross-country road trip montage that's probably unnecessary, but sets up the mother-son relationship as warm and healthy. No angsty teenage jackass here. And again, Macho's performance is key to this working. The crux of the movie, though, is, of course, Pat Morita. And Mr Miyagi is perhaps one of the most memorable characters from my childhood. As an adult, I have my concerns about the veracity of the speech patterns and the less-than-perfect English, but... (laughs) While Morita was an American, his parents were Japanese immigrants, so, until I know better... I'll accept that he was using his own experience to inform his portrayal. I still find him entertaining to watch, and the few moments where he's allowed to display some emotion actually work for me, despite them having a definite possibility of being cheesy. And the small snippets of information gleaned about his past, as well as the chemistry between Macho and Marita, quickly dispel any disquiet about why this man should want to spend so much time with a teenager. So, to sum up, I guess, I'm pleased to discover that I still find the Karate Kid largely enjoyable. So chalk one up for stands up to viewing as an adult, for me at least. Yeah, um, I agree. I was actually a little surprised because I thought this might have been a bit too hackneyed to come back to, but it really does stand up pretty well. I just think, uh, as you say, Pat Marita's fantastic in it, which helps a lot. And mm. I think I think what stuck out on this viewing, apart from it having one of the hardest outs in <laughs> in cinema history, it's like, like, <laughs> like, hey, you've won, yay, credits. It's, it's like, <laughs> there's not many films other than that, apart from that one that was on Best of the Worst a while back. <laughs> oh, the, the one with the guy firing the rocket? Yes, that one. 
Mark Collins turned himself out. What, that's the end? <laughs> yes. And this, this one's almost as sudden and abrupt. Um, but, yeah, but, what, but this. It's important I remember these things, so you know me. <laughs> well, I think what did stick out on this interview was how good um, Ralph Macchio is, uh, mm. which I didn't necessarily remember, but uh, his performance really does help uh, help help a lot. Because some films will go on later where it's almost like they've taken Macho's character and split him out into about four to five different people, and that's been not worked at all. Whereas this guy feels like a properly rounded human being, and uh, you know he's got a bit of attitude, but yeah, he's he's also vulnerable and human and, and all that as well. So it it does make it feel like he's a a properly rounded character who can uh, who can stand up to these things. And I think sometimes that kind of gets lost in the shuffle in some uh, in certainly more contemporary films. Yes, I, I would. I, I just enjoyed all of it. If you, the view from space, I suppose, would be that it's a fairly standard sporting underdog story, and um, the Rocky Bloodline kind of runs through it in that regard. But it still works. It's a, a, a story archetype that's come back to time and time again because it's hard to screw it up, and <laughs> this works really well. And when you've got so sympathetic characters and trainers and teachers as you have in this one, and it's just a really well put together film. And yeah, I would absolutely agree that it does stand up um, much better than I remember any of the sequels standing up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but would uh, maybe not fair. I've not seen those recently, but I certainly don't want to. Um, but uh, yeah, the Karate Kid actually was a very enjoyable uh, rewatch, and uh, I would heartily recommend it to anyone who somehow has not seen it already. Yeah, absolutely. Again, this one definitely works for me as an adult. Mm. I had seen it sometime within the last decade, I think. So mm. I kind of knew going in that I, I still liked it. I think this really goes solid into like a proper family film. It's definitely not aimed younger like some of the films we'll come to yeah and yeah it's it's the key is marita and macho and they, they work really well together they're really entertaining and it's something that you could see the tone's a little different the card is a little simpler but going forward a couple of years to my cousin Vinny as well mm-hmm. that macho does have that kind of like he's trying to be kind of cooler and older and wise, more streetwise than he actually is, but yeah. you kind of see through it, and he does. He plays that really well, so it it would be quite an easy role to just play like an absolute asshat. Yeah, you know, really just gonna so I get, but no, he just plays it mm-hmm. just pitches it just nicely, and it's like yeah, okay, he's, he's actually this kid's trying to like be smarter, or tougher, or whatever than he actually is. But he's actually not like yeah. a decent guy who just was uh, quite like the people not to be trying to kill him you know yeah and i think crucially he's also quite self-aware about what the attitude he's putting on as well because yeah, at some point he, when he gets called out he kind of goes yep, yep absolutely yes. <laughs> you got me and uh, that, that kind of helps uh, helps with him as well yeah i mean i guess the only real downside that i would pick about it beyond perhaps it, it seems maybe stretching credulity but Two things stretch credulity a little. One is the fact that he's training for this championship within two months. Yeah. <laughs> they could have just shifted it at the end of the school year and it would have been a problem and they would have yeah. given him an extra six months to work on. But uh, is that John Kreese is such a thug. It's like, yeah. Yeah, why does he want kids to beat up pensioners? That, that's odd. But now, the other thing is that we've said it before, I'm sure we'll say it again, and the 80s were probably a particularly bad time for this. Elizabeth Shue, and to, to a lesser degree... Daniel's mother, although she, she doesn't need to be a particularly big character in a bit. Elizabeth, she doesn't get an awful lot to do. No. no. Um, a couple of funny lines, and she's like, she's at least served with the like the quick thinking of being the interpreter at the end. Um, yeah. So she, she can come in with Daniel and Mr. Miyagi. So like, they give her some sort of ability, like quick thinking ability. But throughout the film, for the most part, she's not got an awful lot to do. Um, mm-hmm. 
So it's necessarily a valid criticism, but it's hardly unique for this era in particular. Yes, um, it's actually inspired me to go and dig out Cobra Kai, the uh, YouTube, I think, I guess it is, series, which I'd just discounted as obviously being going to be nonsense. But uh, <laughs> it, it seems like this would work. I mean, I, I think we all need to work out which is the most enduring uh, piece of life lesson. Is it wax on, wax off, or is it sweep the leg? We need to find <laughs> out who wins in the long term. So I may give that a look at some point. Um, certainly. It's an appealing start that this is actually still a thoroughly enjoyable film. And really, if anybody's looking to show this to their kids, there's nothing, I mean, sort of like there's the threat of the bullies and stuff, but it's still, it's still pretty wholesome without being kind of corny or cheesy or too sentimental or anything like that. But yeah. bits of fun, entertaining, um, and it's very much not the Jackie Chan version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, so. We're going to move on from Karate Kid, and we're going to move on to, well, slightly later that year, I think, in terms of release date, to (laughs) The NeverEnding Story. Yes, unless you're in the UK, where it was bizarrely just held up for another year, for whatever reason, according to IMDb the other day. Yeah, The NeverEnding Story, which as we discussed earlier, not only ends, I believe it's the shortest film we're going to speak about today, so (laughs) minus five stars. (laughs) for misleading title alone. Uh, this is, of course, the obvious next step for director Wolfgang Peterson after 1981's tense, claustrophobic, submariner classic Das Boot. Uh, this, of course, this sprawling adventure in fantasy land just quite clearly the obvious next step. Um, <laughs> a change is, is as good as a rest, I suppose. Uh, Barrett Oliver's bastion Balthazar Bucks has a problem. His father wants him to get his head out of the clouds and knuckle down on the schoolwork rather than sketching fantastic creatures in mathematics class. He's being bullied by the local thugs who steal his lunch, money and dump him in dumpsters. To be honest, it's all the sort of things you'd expect if you will insist on being called Bastian Balthazar Bucks. <laughs> Fleeing bullies, he ducks into a mysterious bookshop where a grumpy bookseller tempts him into borrow-stealing a dangerous novel. The never-ending story, boom, title drop. Arriving late to school, he ducks a maths test to go to read this book in the attic, and inside he and we learn of Fantasia, a land being consumed by the nothing. It's believed because their leader, the aptly named childlike empress, is ill and in some sort of fantasy coma. A hero, Noah Hathaway's Atreyu, whose name does not reference his being a child status, despite it being just as much of a thing as with the empress, is tasked with finding a cure and given an entirely pointless MacGuffin of a necklace that, to my recollection, does absolutely hee-haw to help him. Off a trio goes, seeking out various sources of wisdom to help him in his quest, that mainly tell him to go and see some other source of wisdom in his quest, which, were this a video game, would have had me throwing a controller at the screen long before a trio's <laughs> patience gives out. Uh, but along the way, we will meet his depressed horse, a nihilistic giant turtle with mental health concerns, a giant rock dude who eat rocks, which surely makes him a cannibal, and a narcoleptic bat, and of course a terrifying furry dragon Falcor, all to the beat of a George Homeroder soundtrack. This is a weird and European film. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's certainly things oh, to appreciate. It's German, Scott. Yes, it's very German. Now, there's certainly things to appreciate here. Uh, barring a few super ropey composite shots towards the end of the film, uh, the effects work still looks pretty solid, and there's some really impressive and detailed models slash puppets slash amateurs, yeah. whatever. Um, the overarching metafiction is a really neat gimmick, and the performances from our kiddie leagues are perfectly acceptable. Narratively, it's perhaps not so satisfying, although that's arguably more a problem with repeat viewings. Uh, there's enough sort of gee whiz dressing to distract from the, sc- 
script leaning rather more heavily on the actual literal physical part of a hero's journey rather than a more metaphysical one which I think uh, only sort of works uh, if you don't examine it all that closely I, I don't have a lot of nostalgia for this I could swear I'd seen it as a kid but I may just be remembering the Lamal theme tune video uh, overall though I liked it just fine um, and here's a rarity I wish it was longer uh, <laughs> everything's just a bit too compressed and rushed here and the pace of it sort of undermines the supposed difficulty of this journey and also leaves very little time for really knowing any of the characters in it be that Bastion or Atreyu or that horse I'm supposed to care about despite having barely seen him <laughs> lasagna as i call him <laughs> yes uh, it's an entirely adequate film and so i awarded her a prestigious entirely adequate film award <laughs> which is an award for being an adequate film although coincidentally the award itself is also just adequate <laughs> yeah i i get what you said to about perhaps needing to stretch it a little to to make it seem more of an arduous journey for a treyu because it's yeah. like he just sort of gets places yes it's all very abridged which yeah, um, for which you, I would almost let it away with, were it not called the never-ending story, which implies <laughs> a certain amount of length to it, you know? I, yeah, I do quite like the metafiction. It's an interesting idea. I, I mm. don't think this film does it particularly well, but I do like the idea. The problem I have with it is that I, there's just not much story there. No. It isn't all that much fiction. Um, mm. Yeah. It, it, as I say, it does lean a lot on just him walking from places to another place and trying to get past things that aren't threatening in any r- obvious way. Yeah. Like, he's, like all that big deal that's made about him trying to get through past those um, sentinel statue things. It's like, but actually all you need to do is run between them, apparently. It's, the, the, it doesn't do a great job of uh, conveying an arduousness of the story. Yeah, it kind of shortchanges its ideas. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's... The idea of those in particular is that it's like they look into your actual heart and if you don't think you're worthy, they'll kill you. But if you're not worthy, but also quite quick, you're yes. fine. <laughs> um, whereas like, I, I kind of, I, I, I only saw this as an adult and definitely never saw this as a kid. I was always mm-hmm. aware of it, curious enough, but none, none of us saw it. Yeah. But I remember so few of the details rewatching it this time. But when I saw those, I thought, oh, it's going to be kind of like a riddle of the Sphinx sort of thing. Yeah. But no, it's like, oh, just, how, how'd you get past this run? So, okay. So, a little unsatisfying. Uh, you mentioned the performance he's been quite good. I largely agree. Uh, I like the kid playing Atreyu. Um, apparently, he's not a young Anna Kendrick, despite yeah. looking exactly like Anna Kendrick, but okay. The only problem I really had is, like, the kid playing Bastien, Balthazar, I've got all the money, Getty, or whatever his name yes. really is. <laughs> I kind of thought he was rotten. Every time he appeared, he took me right out of it. I just mm. thought that kid was terrible. Um, you obviously didn't, so I guess your mileage may vary. Uh, he certainly wasn't as good as uh, Noah Hathaway um, by a long chalk, but he, because he was underused for most of it, apart from the end, you know, the last couple of scenes, it didn't bother me that much, I guess. But yeah, yeah. For me, this is very much a a film of two parts and in the end it's not one I would recommend because I was less so dissatisfied by much of it but it is the big problem I have with it is that the story isn't yeah. you know, there's just not <laughs> enough uh, substance there but the world I love the world yeah. and the the details and like the special effects well, but just like the actual the design of them like the big rock man with his rock simmer 
Yeah, that's really incredible. Um, and, and almost all that stuff is as well, yeah. Yeah, it's all really nice. I mean, Falkors, a right creepy dragon <laughs> puppy, yeah, <laughs> bastard, whatever it is. But, uh, but, you know, it's like, it's really good. And the way the, the actual the detail of the movements of the puppets and stuff and the way the eyes move and things like that. I mean, that thing's clearly huge. There's yeah. a lot of work gone into that. It was really impressive work. And then... There's a scene where Atreyu gets called to the court and he gets given his useless, as you say, amulet and his task. And you see all these incredibly interesting characters like the... The dude with two faces. There's a couple of them and there's all these really interesting things. And that's the only scene in the entire film they appear (laughs) in. This is fantastic. I love that that level of vision that like they've put so much work and detail into this thing and they're on screen for what? 10 seconds, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a whole coast of them, and then you have the other characters you see a bit more, actually. The guy that's got the racing snail. The racing snail's more interesting. That character's not so interesting, but you've got Deep Roy, a lot of people might know from Charlie and Chocolate Factory, who plays all of the Oompa Loompas. Mm. Um, Him and his bat. I have those confused which one has which steed. It doesn't matter. That's that's right, yeah. yeah. I Um, think. And but yeah, there's just some wonderful designs there. Like, the rock creature is so good, and then Falcon, and there's some nice wee, just in terms of the, the way the world works, the nice wee fake outs too of the the old woman and the old man just before the statues, mm-hmm. and you suddenly find out they're tiny. Yeah, and it's, like, it's just nice wee fun bits like that. So the world and the design and the characters are fantastic, and the story is meh. Nah. Yeah, it's um, it's a real pity. I mean, it's stuff. I mean, there are some quite sinister things in there too. It starts off with that really quite upbeat, poppy, 1980s Lamal song, while the most terrifying-looking clouds I've ever seen play across the screen. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's like a burned body as well. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's a kind of strange mix, but yeah, I, I like the world. I just wish they'd done more in it. That's the problem I have with this in the end. Yeah, um, if I remember correctly, it's it's adapting the first half of a book right. and not the second of it. Um, I think that's kind of got covered in some of the sequels. But uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot more need to play in this in this world that they so casually rip apart in this <laughs> one. Um, uh, I, I would happily have sat and watched a, a great number of uh, adventures in it before you destroyed it. <laughs> but <laughs> would I recommend it? it I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend people avoid it, but I can't really recommend people seek it out either at this point uh, in time. Um, unless you're, if you're big into the sort of visual design of things, then I think you'd probably get enough of a joy out of it to, to at least have it be on your queue, or at least give it give it some consideration. But yeah, if you're more of a narrative person, yeah, this doesn't deliver. Yeah, what's it run to eighty nine minutes? I think isn't it? So it really is yeah, short. If so, that, yeah. Um, yeah. Although curiously, you said it's the one you might want more of. I think weirdly. I think because so little actually happens, I did find my attention wandering a little bit towards the end of this. Okay. Um, even though it's a short... I, again, it's just because I'm enjoying the world, but like, I kind of want something to happen and nothing's happening, and it was frustrating <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> but yeah, I guess another shout out to the, the character design work and for something that's it's barely on screen and put so much effort into it. I really like that. I, I kind of feel bad at the same time. It's like that people didn't see their work represented fully. Yeah. I kind of like the fact that, no, we don't need to see it more. We don't need to repeat it. This is just fantastic. Here you go. Yeah. <laughs> I like that portion of it. Yes. The rest is a little disappointing, unfortunately. Next up on the list, something that will be familiar to many, I assume, uh, The Goonies. Yes. Ah, The Goonies. 
Perhaps the most famous of the films we're covering today, certainly one of the most highly regarded as a great kids movie. It had influence on Stranger Things and the casting of Sean Astin, who plays lead Goonie Mikey in season two of Stranger Things, was clearly no coincidence. Hmm. In coastal Oregon, a group of young friends known as the Goonies are contemplating the end of their time together as a local evil rich man is forcing the sale or seizure of their homes in order to build a golf course. Is a residential area covered in buildings and tarmac roads really the most viable spot for golf course conversion? <laughs> These are the thoughts I have, <laughs> um, uh, meaning that their gang will eventually be broken up. At the last hour, almost literally, they discover a treasure map supposedly leading to the final resting place of the booty of a pirate known as One-Eyed Willie, and decide to hunt it down in order to save their parents from mortgage default. The Goonies, Mikey, Chunk, Jeff Cohen, Mouth, Corey Feldman, and Data, Ki Hai Kwan, are joined in this endeavour by Mikey's older brother, Brand, Josh Brolin, and considerably less willingly, two girls of Brand's age, Andy, Kerry Green, and Steph, Martha Plimpton. As if traversing tunnels, caverns, and booby traps wouldn't be dangerous enough, getting that sweet, sweet pirate loot is, com- is complicated by the presence of a family of prison-escaping, FBI-agent-murdering, Opera singing criminals. <laughs> the Fratellis, Robert Davy, Joe Pantoliano, and Anne Ramsey, who want to silence the Goonies and then snaffle the witty. The last time I watched the Goonies, a few years ago now, I had a distinct thought of Boy, for a beloved classic, this sure is crap. <laughs> this time around, I found that I was quite enjoying it for about seven and a half minutes. After which time, my lives alternated between bored and irritated. Some of this I put down to not a great deal happening, which might fly for a child, but not for me. But mostly was due to a lazy script and unlikable characters. Mm-hmm. Firstly, there's Sean Aston's Mikey, who begins as a whiny wee git, too afraid to go into the attic because his mum said not to. However, on finding the map, he's suddenly the driving force <laughs> and urging his friends to risk their lives in search of unlikely treasure. Though at no point does he stop being a whiny wee git. <laughs> then we have Corey Feldman's mouth. Perhaps my biggest uh, character problem with the film. A smart-ass bullying wee prick, but he spent altogether too much time wishing would fall to his death on a particularly pointy stalagmite. <laughs> and Jeff Cohen's chunk. The dumb, clumsy fat kid, well, because of course he is, <laughs> whose entire character motivation is, is hungry. <laughs> True. You're not <laughs> suggesting that Chris Columbus is a hack, are you? <laughs> I think you might be. Scott, do you want and to I'm know? on board with that, just to be clear. Do you want to know what exactly what adjective I have put in front of Chris Columbus's name in the next paragraph of written? <laughs> <laughs> Following such lazy stereotyping, naturally the Asian kid is the geeky inventor, and the girls, well, they scream, don't they? Because that's what <laughs> girls do. There seems a constant tension, or perhaps conflict, between director Richard Donner's attempts to create an action-adventure movie and hack screenwriter Chris Columbus's script (laughs) and his love of slapsticky, cartoonish ideas. Some of that may fly in Home Alone, though even in that film, the skeleton definitely oversteps the mark. Mm. But here, things like being saved from death by wind-up teeth is constantly at odds with the... (laughs) It's constantly odds with the gun-toting, law-enforcement-murdering Fratellis <laughs> and Josh Brolin being forced to travel at 40 miles per hour on a bike then dispatched on a hillside. <laughs> the biggest problems definitely come from the script, including some really hokey dialogue, 
but it's certainly not helped by the headaches induced by a good 50%, if not more, of the film being yelled, often by several (laughs) characters at once. A bafflingly popular and well-regarded film that merits none of it. Yeah, uh, I I unfortunately agree. Um, This one, I'm I'm sure I have somehow avoided. I do not think I'd seen a frame of this before uh, watching it just the other week there. And I hated it. <laughs> Absolutely hated it. It's a bad film. <laughs> but I thought, right, to be fair, I was watching it on a flight. It's not ideal conditions. I'll give it another go. So I did, did just oh, listen last week. Crikey, Scott. I didn't hate it as much, <laughs> but I still hated it. Um, and to be honest, I'd be really just uh, rehashing much of what you said there. Characters, yeah, didn't like them. They're all very one note, one key. Uh, this was kind of what was alluding to earlier with uh, uh, Macho's characters. I was thinking exactly of this film because it's like you've you've taken uh, Ralph Macho's character in the Karate Kid and uh, split it through a prism into about <laughs> five different characters, none of who are even remotely strong enough to hold to become a character by themselves. Yeah, but um, ca- the word "character" itself is a bit of a stretch to describe these people. Yes, uh, and and most of them are just annoying. Um, I like Sean Astin recently, um, but I don't like him here. Um, I actually like him a lot in Stranger Things. Yes, yes. I really like um, him as um, Bob. I've not seen him in a lot of things over the past few decades, but almost everything that I have seen him in, I have liked him in. Not just Lord of the Rings, but everything else I've seen. He's, he, he is perfectly fine, but he's not here. Um, again, I think that's just the character. Um, yeah, even, it, as the, even as like the ridiculously roided up brother to... Drew Barrymore and Fifty First Dates, a ridiculous yeah. card, but I can actually like him in that bit. Yeah, here, no. Yes, um, just ugh, yeah, don't get it. So it, he's almost got the same character problem as um, Ben Affleck's character in Triple Frontier from our last podcast, didn't he? Uh, it's a, a, a sudden arbitrary change of character from it makes no sense. Yeah, no yeah. sense at all. And uh, Corey Feldman, I was. Just hoping he would be launched into the sun. <laughs> just no, no. Yeah, Every time it's on there. He's, he's, uh, he's a cruel and nasty little git. Um, yeah. He's torturing somebody who's meant to be his friend. I have no time for that. It's horrible. Yeah. When I watched it again, I, I think I managed to disassociate myself from it a little bit more. And there's things happening in the script that I should like. I should be entertained by all of this, but I just wasn't. And I, I think that's just because I didn't like any of the characters in it. I didn't really care about any of them, and it was annoying me. <laughs> yeah, so I just I just couldn't bring myself to really enjoy much of it. It seems like it should be a fun romp, and I can I guess I can see why people would like it if they're not as annoyed by the characters as I was. But um, I just couldn't get past that hurdle. And I assume uh, deaf people could have a much better time with this yeah. film because they wouldn't have to stop every two minutes. Would you stop yelling for the yeah. love of God? Please stop screaming. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't really have much more to add to it. Chris Columbus has, I think, done almost no films that I like, despite his long career. I mean, I guess the closest I would come to say that he's done a film that I liked was Home Alone. And pretty much the rest of his career has been a lot of stuff that I just don't understand why anyone could possibly like. I really, I, I love Gremlins and I've always loved Gremlins, but I think Joe oh, of course, Gremlins, ignored yeah. most of his script, at least in terms yeah. of the... Oh, there are kind of cartoonish bits in that but they fit much more certainly more than they do here yeah yeah gremlins is a kind of slightly, slightly fantastical thing anyway yeah i always yeah. forget about gremlins but uh, i yeah, there's nothing else here that i would want to see definitely the worst harry yeah. potter films again with his love of the cartoonish stuff in there that just does yeah. not fit with the tone of the rest of the film mm. yeah 
and even Richard Donner, I think we, but he's done a lot of films that I really like. Obviously, Lethal Weapon, Superman, Omen, Scrooge, and tons of films that I like. But this, yeah, this I just, know. this is just not one of them, and I don't understand how it's gone quite so bad. There seems to be enough talent sort of around it that it should have been really good. Um, but yeah, no, it does. It really does seem to be like a conflict between his interpretation and the script. Like, yeah, the, the two don't go together at all. Yeah, like, yeah, and. Uh, even then, there's just the tonal things in it. It's like this poor, brain damaged. I don't want to use the word freak, but I think it would be a, you'd understand what I meant by that if you've not yeah, seen the Goonies. Yeah. But who um, has is kept up chained up as an animal, um, and he finds it later that it's because his mother dropped him on his head as a baby a couple of times. Yeah. Oh, how funny! And that's ha, horrific. Ha, 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 ha. That's funny. Yeah, there's really <laughs> odd stuff in there. Uh, yeah, so, yes, the Goonies is trash. Yeah. Uh, and if you like it, you're a bad person. <laughs> right. But we have uh, strong thoughts on these things. <laughs> okay, so we had numerous opportunities or options for Jim Henson films for this podcast. We definitely need to have something from Jim Henson, quite a large part of in my childhood. In one way or another. Mm. What we settled on was 1986's Labyrinth with the great, late, great David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Yes, this film is David Bowie, Muppet Goblins and a farting bog. Do you need me to say much more than that? Five out of five. <laughs> Sir Didymus! <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Jennifer Connolly's Sarah Williams, a teenage fantasy enthusiast, spends a bit too long rehearsing her lines in the park, arriving late home for the agreed babysitting of her baby brother. On receiving the slightest of admonishments, she throws <laughs> the stroppiest of fits and the injustice of the world condensed into this mild inconvenience and wishes that her brother be removed from her life, perhaps by Jared, the Goblin King, from that play that she was just rehearsing. Music to David Bowie's ears was was a, and he dispatches his mother goblin minions to whisk the kid away to his lair in the centre of a labyrinth boom title drop. He's not a monster though, so the child-stealing monster allows Sarah a 13-hour window to mount a rescue before turning the kid into a goblin. So, off she goes, through the dangerous and confusing labyrinth, aided and abetted by the creatures that she meets, like the worm offering her a nice cup of tea, which she refuses, earning Sarah the enmity of Englishmen everywhere. Over the course of things, she'll have mustered the help of the cowardly, conflicted turncoat hoggle, the hulking beast Ludo, and a fox knight, Sir Didymus, whose steed appears to be the dog from Fraggle Rock, or the UK one, at least. Uh, no, that was Sprocket. No, no, it's the dog the Jolox advert, Scott. <laughs> Sprocket's an entirely different creature, uh, and I do not thank you for confusing them. Sprocket was awesome. Yes. You did monster. You know, did you know that Fraggle Rock had a different framing location for every region it was released into? I did, I yes. Yeah. Was, but anyway, uh, I only found we'll, that was we'll an adult. But, yeah. yes. um, but yeah, Britain cleared the best one because I had Fulton Mackay in a lighthouse. Fulton yes. Mackay's great. <laughs> and Scottish. Yes. I think, yeah. Anyway, we're getting sidetracked. Right. Um, That's a bit of an aside. Yes. <laughs> a lot like the never-ending story, there's not an awful lot of complexity to this piece. It's basically someone running through a maze stuffed with oddities, occasionally being heckled by David Bowie, who then performs a musical <laughs> number, was always a... And, <laughs> 
And I suppose you could accuse it of being a trifle thin. And I suppose you'd be right. But it doesn't seem as critical a point in Labyrinth, which has little pretense of being more than an ephemeral entertainment. Uh, typically, works con- con- works considering themselves of great import do not feature a farting bog. <laughs> uh, Connolly's likeable enough well, once things kick off in earnest anyway, and there's some really terrific work again done by Jim Henson's workshop. The script was, I read, much more collaborative, or perhaps meddled with, uh, than the sole Terry Jones screenwriting credit would have us believe, but while perhaps any deeper meaning has been stripped away in favour of more Bowie and jokes, I like Bowie, and I like (laughs) jokes, so this works for me. I'm really not sure this is a classic for the ages, uh, but there is more than enough talent involved with it that it can't help but be enjoyable, or at least a superficial level. Uh, Perhaps you'd want or expect more, given the level of talent that's been thrown at this film, but this is still good. It's just not great, much as it pains me to admit it. There's a lot of things that I like in here, and I really enjoyed watching it, but I can't in all honesty say it's actually a good film. It's just an enjoyable one. And that's enough. But it's not an all-time classic or anything that would need to be particularly preserved in a time capsule as an example of the best of cinema. But it is a hell of a lot of fun. So, yeah, it's still good. I would still recommend it. I think at times you could be on a hiding to nothing trying to separate good and enjoyable. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, certainly it's very enjoyable. And I've seen this two or three times since I've done it, or at least two. And I actually enjoy it more each time I see it. I think it's... Uh, I probably didn't mention this, but I th- the script's really clever, at least in terms of the wordplay of it. There's lots of really nice jokes throughout it, which you may not catch on the first view through. Yeah. So it's, it does reward a bit of repeat viewing in that regard, I suppose. It's, yeah. it, it, it is a bit of a, a Monty Python-ish script, so that works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I just find that's a whole heck of a lot of fun. Bowie's great in it. The musical numbers are fun. Like Magic Dance in particular. <laughs> yes. It's... Uh, Why am I king of the goblins? <laughs> I don't look anything like them. Never uh, answered, never addressed. <laughs> it's got Jim Henson's classic creature designs. Um, and the only downside to that is that for the most part, there are exceptions, but the most part, Jim Henson's stuff looks like Jim Henson's stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hence so. my confusion with the dog, sorry. <laughs> no, uh, Spock is... Uh, an actual puppet dog and is brown and grey. Um, mm. Ambrosius is um, not. Uh, there's just something incredibly cute about watching the actual when they use the the real English old English sheep dog mm. with a puppet strapped on its back on a saddle. <laughs> it's brilliant. Uh, also, Sir Didymus is my favourite thing about the film. Uh, <laughs> you can keep your boy Sir Didymus as a star. I think he's fantastic. Um, I think that's actually a good example because um, it kind of. It plays a wee bit on the typical sort of things in this, and maybe actually it's calling back to something like Monty Python and the Holy Grail a bit, like mm. having like pass a gatekeeper sort yes, of character. Yes. <laughs> uh, but here that they they go to Sir Didymus and they say, "I can't let you pass. I, I've sworn an oath. Huh, what, what's the oath you swore? I swore uh, so my solemn vow was to never let anyone pass without my permission." <laughs> and then Jennifer Connelly, because the character's written as like quite a smart person, a thoughtful, yeah. which is really good. It says. Oh, can we have your your permission? Mm. And then it's like, well, nobody's ever asked that before. Like, uh, yes, <laughs> I don't really like that. It's like, instead of like you have the like a really really clever riddle, like the riddle of the Sphinx that I alluded yeah. to earlier, or the um, or the one that appears in, or something. It's like, or the riddle that appears earlier, which I think is also the same one that's in um, 
I have no mouth, but I have a screen. But if I, if my, if your brother's telling a lie, one that one. Yeah, there's <laughs> um, like the there's actually no name for that. Um, yeah, I can't remember what it's called. It's called like, like how do you know which person's lying and yeah. stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's just a tremendous amount of fun. It looks actually quite nice, as much as that it is limited by being shot on a soundstage, and it looks soundstagey. Uh, yes. Uh, that said, and I've, I've, I realise, just going back to what I wrote there, it's, it doesn't, it, it, I, I was trying to be funny rather than accurate, but a lot of this looks really good still. I mean, Jim Henson's work has always looked good and always will look yeah, good, yeah. Uh, particularly in this spot. There's lots of set design pieces towards the end. A lot of it sounds stagey, of course, um, but the whole sort of Escher thing towards the end, I thought was a really cool looking sequence. Yeah, Visually, that's cool. fantastic. Uh, and there's yeah. a lot of that sort of peppered throughout. I think it could have done without the farting bog, if I'm honest with you, but the farting bog's funny, so... <laughs> yeah. Swings around a bit. <laughs> Smell bad. Ooh. And it's like the same host of performers that have worked on other hens and stuff, the Muppets in particular, like Steve Whitmire and Steve Goals, or Dave Goals and stuff, and then whoever's in the big suit is Ludo. Um, I think it's probably the same guy that was the... his, like, Sweetums in the Muppets and mm. the character from... Fraggle Rock Jr. Right. Um, son of the king and queen that they still steal the radishes from. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've always loved Jim Henson's stuff. I find it really inventive and entertaining and generally pretty funny. And it's really good here. And it, on Blu-ray, it actually it looks really good. There's a definite possibility okay. with things like this that uh, an HD transfer will just show up the shoddiness of everything. Yeah. And it doesn't actually, it looks really nice because I was never fooled thinking, oh, all these polystyrene blocks are stone. And suddenly, <laughs> oh no, polystyrene. But actually it cleans up really nicely. And it's just a tremendous amount of fun. And so Didymus is awesome. And also, it's not ever established, I think, in the the film, how old Jennifer Connelly's supposed to be. But she's got to be probably 13 or 14 at least because her stepmother says to her, why aren't you going on dates? At your age, you should be going on some dates. So she's presumably not a child or anything. Yeah. And Jennifer Connelly was 15 when she shot this. So I was like, oh, yes, finally. They were, <laughs> they cast someone That's of the appropriate right. age. <laughs> it makes such a difference. Yeah. So like you're not suddenly thinking, like, here is an adolescent or something going around this maze. Like, oh, well, that's an adult then. I don't really care quite so much about it, but I'm not so concerned for them, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it's, at least it takes you out of it. So there is that. Yeah, it's just a tremendous amount of fun. Mm-hmm. I guess perhaps just, just alluding to that, the, the kind of overarching metaphor of um, you know be, becoming more responsible in this sort of, sort of the, almost the inverse of the never-ending story uh, <laughs> you know, uh, about you know facing up to responsibilities of adulthood and all that stuff. I think from what I read, Terry Jones's original first pass at it had a bit more of that in it. And I think you see echoes of that in there, but it's kind of underserved and almost to the point that I kind of wish it wasn't there at all. It gets in the way of it being fun at points. It's, a, it's perhaps a minor thing. Um, Terry Jones, I think, had kind of not not disowned it. I think, but he's he's he said that it's not really his script anymore. Um, it was a collaborative thing between the directors and some of the other uh, uh, between Jim Henson and whoever else is credited with the story, whose name escapes me just now. Um, but Wikipedia will will tell you <laughs> the same stories I'm relating to you because that's where I read it. Um, <laughs> it's well, front of all. Um- <laughs> All probable knowledge. knowledge. Yeah. Uh, all knowledge that I don't really care to examine all that much. Uh, yeah, but... Uh, Dennis Lee? I, probably sounds right, yes. 
echoes of that remain. It, I think perhaps that's why this was not a huge success. It does, at points, feel like it's not quite sure what it wants to commit to. Is this a proper fable about um, coming-of-age responsibility, or is it just a fun thing with Muppets? And there's a few scenes where it sort of wobbles between those. A fun thing with Muppets, with David Bowie in it, for some reason, doing numbers. <laughs> and... I don't care about all that stuff. I think it just hangs together to be entertaining. I'm not really going to delve into it too much. I suppose if you were really going to want to go to ham analysing themes on this, this would kind of fall apart a little bit in that regard. But I don't care. It's fun. So, yes, (laughs) well worth looking at and uh, definitely stands up um, to this time for me. But, of course, I would say that it's got David Bowie in it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, David Bowie didn't do many film roles, but I actually think of, I've liked pretty much 100% of the films I've seen them in, so yeah. that's quite a uh, quite a hit rate. <laughs> yes, join us next month for David Bowie's season. <laughs> we... Yes, so um, shall we crash onwards to uh, let's probably also one of the most famous uh, and well-remembered films on this list would be Short Circuit from 1986. Well, possibly because another film completely ripped it off, but yes. yes. <laughs> So, by coincidence, we return to Oregon, and even the same city as the Goonies, Astoria, for short circuit. Yes, before anybody says anything, it starts in Washington, I know, where Wally is shown as an original role as a military <laughs> robot. Though here he's called number five for some reason. <laughs> number five is a laser-toting prototype for a robot designed to carry nuclear weapons, which doesn't make a whole heap of sense, it doesn't seem practical, but... <laughs> This may not be the point of this film. I love the rationale. You can drop them behind the enemy lines and they'll drop the weapons. It's like, can't you just drop the nuclear weapons instead? Isn't that how bombs work? <laughs> okay, whatever. But after being struck by lightning while recharging, he develops sentience, a personality and a conscience. He's also struck by wanderlust and a need for input. So he skedaddles out of the base, turning up in Stephanie, Ali Shidi's food truck, where she assumes he's an alien. She is disappointed to find out that he is not an alien. <laughs> but being the generous sort that she is, she forgives him for not being an alien and befriends <laughs> him instead. <laughs> and then helps him to stay out of the clutches of the military who are, understandably, keen to get their multi-million dollar property back. <laughs> their malfunctioning, multi-million dollar, heavily armed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's not much more to short circuit than that. And... Uh, the most entertaining things by far are the moments where the robot is beginning to learn. Indeed, any time the robot is not on screen, entertainment and attention drop precipitously. Though even when Johnny Five, as he becomes known, is on screen, it's not all brilliant. For example, when achingly unfunny slapstick rubbish like the Three Stooges is brought into the mix. <laughs> I mentioned Wally in my introduction, introductory paragraph, and if you've seen that film, then you've seen a great deal of what little this film has to offer. <laughs> Pixar's character, design, activities and all is lifted pretty much wholesale from Short Circuit. Though, having not seen this in decades, I hadn't realised until now quite how shameless it is. As with Wally, any portions with humans are the least entertaining by far. And while I wouldn't call Short Circuit bad exactly, it is pretty dull and forgettable. Indeed, perhaps the most significant thing about Short Circuit is something of a meta detail. To wit, the casting of Fisher Stevens... White Jewish man from Chicago. Yes. Noted white man, yes. yes. <laughs> As the brown faced, heavily accented Ben Jabatuya, an Indian immigrant. Why movie? Why? For what possible reason? 
I very much doubt I'm alone in having seen this as a child and not having discovered well into adulthood that Ben wasn't, in fact, Indian or of Indian dis- uh, Indian heritage. Exactly! Because I'd not seen this in Donkeys for a couple of weeks back and I was absolutely sure that the, the Indian fella, and it's clearly an Indian fella in my mind, he looks much more Indian, but then I saw it again it's like, this is, this is bad! This yeah. is very bad! I knew he was All wasn't. my wokeness sensors are tingling. This can't work. Not only because I've heard so many like different podcasts and whatever talk about Fisher Stevens being in this film and, it's like, and then seeing like clips on, uh, I don't think it was best to watch, but something on YouTube like hmm. talking about how bad hackers are and it's showing Fisher Stevens. Like, why do I know that name? Yes. Like, wow. Jeez. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, I knew, so I knew coming into this viewing about it, but uh, like, how? And, yeah. and, and why? It's an utterly baffling decision. And get and so much of this film relies on the broadly accented to foreigner misunderstanding yeah. English tropes. Um, uh, get these idioms mixed up and yeah. stuff. Yeah, you could at least. I mean, we've spoken a little bit about like blackface and something with like some of the uh, the zombie episodes in particular, where you know, you could almost perhaps kind of make an argument defending it for a film made in 1910 or something. But yeah, not 1987. Yeah, there may have been one or two people of Indian descent in Hollywood around that time that you could have picked from. I know. Maybe, just saying. Yeah, when you have people like Robert Donut playing a Chinese in The End of the Sixth Happiness in what, 1957 or whatever that film yeah. is, that's horrendous enough for... Um, Joseph Wise and Doctor No, who's meant to be of oh, yes, please let's not talk about breakfast at Tiffany's it may be the worst or amongst the worst. Yeah. Or John Wayne playing Genghis Khan. Good <laughs> lord. Um but yeah, but they another thirty years on top of that, and they're still doing it for no reason. <laughs> at least when you come to something like John Wayne, as much as I think he's an appalling actor and an appalling human being, but he was a big he was a movie star, right? Yeah. So like, okay, we're going to make a film about Genghis Khan. Let's fit this really big star in that people love into this role. I can understand the thinking, at least, even if it's, you know, wrong thinking. But this character didn't need to be Indian at all. If he did, why did you put some unknown white man in there? It, oh, it breaks my mind, Scott. So that's it. An utterly baffling decision. <laughs> it's a problem confounded by finding myself laughing at lines like, I'm sporting a tremendous Woody right now, <laughs> delivered by <laughs> Stevens, and feeling tremendously guilty about it. Yeah. Oh, and also questioning the presence of that kind of joke in a film aimed squarely at children. <laughs> Add to this the presence of domestic violence as a joke or a setup for action or comic set pieces, and Short Circuit finds itself pushed from probably not worth bothering with to you really shouldn't watch it. Yes. <laughs> I think I feel quite similar to you in some of this. And uh, a couple of weeks back, I, I dropped in on this when it was broadcast on Channel 5's various spin-offs at some point or something. And uh, I, I dropped in just at that point towards the end. And I just remember thinking, this is really, really, really bad. <laughs> because I think it really, as a film, it really tails off an enjoyment factor towards the last third of it. It's just yeah, really bad. When I watched it again, just for this podcast, I did start, obviously, at the start, as one tends to do, <laughs> and I did enjoy it quite a bit more, um, and I think it's something similar to what you're saying. It's There's lots of jokes there that I feel like I really shouldn't be laughing at that yes, did, exactly. did, did, exactly. kind, did kind of wind up still making me laugh, and I do feel a bit guilty about that, to be honest, um, but uh, th- there it is. Um, yes, uh, they're, they're disgusting race-casting work. Um, <laughs> 
then it, that, that said, it's still a film at the end of the day that's got Steve Gutenberg in it, and I cannot condone that sort of nonsense. So no, <laughs> no, um, yeah, the, I, I just didn't enjoy it all that much um, overall. The whole sentient robot thing and uh, Johnny Five himself is pretty cool, and I like that aspect of it, and most of the stuff where he's uh, doing his thing's pretty cool, but I think, as you mentioned, the actual humans involved in it, not all that convinced that it should be made, yeah. Yeah, there there are bits that are reasonably funny in the the sequel, Short Circuit 2, originally named, (laughs) has some similar moments too, um, and it still has Fisher Stevens in the brown face. Yes. At least it replaces (laughs) Steve Gutenberg, but is he in the sequel? I can't remember, but I know he's largely replaced by Michael McKean, which is a massive step up. Yes, yes. But it's the sort of sort of combination of fish out of water and the really naive character sort of being taken advantage of. Yeah. There's definitely some fun there, like him suddenly joining this Latino street gang in New York City and saying, <laughs> um, as locals kick your face, etc. Um, <laughs> so there are moments that are definitely funny there, but they're f- kind of they're stretched pretty thin across the running time because the rest of it's dull. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's not good. It's far from the worst film I've ever seen. But there are, it has so many problems. And like I say, the, the domestic violence thing too, that left a particularly bad taste in my mouth. It's like, that's that's quite sinister stuff. Like this yeah, uh, yeah. ex-boyfriend is stalking Ali Sheedy and he's really threatening her, but it's never played like a real threat. It's more just played as a setup. and it's, That oh, really disturbs me. It's played like this is just a fact of life for women, which is, yeah, if anything, yeah. more upsetting than anything else. Um, well, I'm thinking how harmful that could be to kids too, especially like, um, there will be some kids watching this who are experiencing that situation, if not against them, like against their mother or something, you know, and it's that really, perhaps even more than the racism, that bothers me. Yeah, yeah. I try not to be too... SJW wokeness in my reviews here, but you, know, you, you, you can't help but <laughs> well, when you're watching this film, it just is not a film that you can make these days. And to be honest, that's a good thing. Yes. Uh, there, there are some enjoyable moments in Short Circuit. Uh, if if for some reason you you, are, you did want to watch it, I'm not going to dissuade you from it. It's enjoyable enough, even though where there's many, many problems with it. It's, it is problematic, as we say these days. Um Normally, without actually describing what any problems with it are, I find that seems to be how the word problematic is used these days. Just, just throw it out as a vague, I don't like this statement. Um, <laughs> but at least in short circuit, it is problematic, and you can quite easily identify and describe those problems. So, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it is, as you say, it is clearly not the worst film we will ever see, but uh, it is an artifact of a different era that is perhaps uh, best left in that era. And. Uh, in that regard, perhaps one of the the few in this film that this list that I would say definitely is worth is not worth adding to any lists where you're not interested in it already. No. I mean, it's better than the goodies. So true. <laughs> yes. As far as I'm concerned, that's not a high bar to clear. No. <laughs> <laughs> I would particularly encourage people to watch either of those. Yes. Um, so well, let's move on to something else then, Scott. Something a bit more sci-fi this time. And I know there's like a robot mm-hmm. talking is probably quite sci-fi, so I should probably <laughs> shut <Yes>. up. <laughs> yes. Artificial feel- intelligence isn't particularly scientific when <laughs> I come to think about it. But <laughs> yes, I, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, <laughs> what am I talking about? <laughs> um, but yes, for, 
um, an alien artificial intelligence. That, that differentiates it. Uh, You've pulled it back, Drew. Pulled it back from the brink. <laughs> and a film that... Uh, I, I haven't pulled it much back from the brink. I'm pretty sure I'm going over at the moment, just like uh, Josh Brolin and his little pink bike in The Goonies. But, yes, a film that is apparently scheduled to be rebooted at some point this year, which is Flight of the Navigator, 1986. Yes. Yes, now I'd spent the first 10 minutes of Flight of the Navigator wondering when Joey Kramer's 12-year-old David Freeman was going to get to the arcade before realising that my brain had at some point crosswired this with the last Starfighter. <laughs> Such is life. They're quite different though, but well done. Okay. <laughs> it's about aliens in some way, kind of. Um, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but anyway. Um, <laughs> rather than being whisked, whisked away by aliens to play Wing Commander, he's just being more conventionally studied, but thankfully no probing is shown. Uh, not that he knows that he's been abducted by aliens yet, as he's placed back in the woods outside his home. Unfortunately, time dilation and all that means that, uh, from his family's perspective, he's now suddenly reappeared from the dead eight years after going missing. Strange times for all, even if they are overjoyed to have him back. Medical testing seems to indicate that he's fine, apart from uh, this one weird trick of being able to download information from his brain into computers. He's become Johnny Mnemonic, if I yes. <laughs> I believe that's an actual condition, but possibly only in theme hospital. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, the ship that has brought him back from, has its own troubles. It's hit a power line and is shutting down, erasing its navigational data in the process. NASA are quick to start prodding and eventually tie this to David's reappearance and bring him in for study. Proximity to David reactivates the vessel and its AI control system, Max, voiced by Pee Wee Herman, of all people. And it recognises that the navigational data implanted into David's brain is a solution to its problems. They soon make their escape from the facility in some sort of flight of the navigator. Boom, title drop. <laughs> the procedure to download star charts to Max also downloads some, well, let's call it personality to Max as well, who spends the rest of the film while doing rejected P.B. Herman lines. But all David wants to do is go home, both in location and in time. Uh, this was deemed too risky before, but I hear that Pee Wee Herman gets off on risk. Uh, so, this temp- yeah. uh, <laughs> this this risky temporal manoeuvre is attempted and goes horrifyingly wrong, reducing David to a fine paste. An unbelievably downbeat ending to a Disney film. That may not actually have happened. Uh, but this film and all who sail in her are resolutely fine. Um, yeah. Even Sarah Jessica Parker, as surprising as that sounds, has a, uh, it's a film that has a sequence of events that happens and it comes to a conclusion and it doesn't really step on anyone's toes while doing it. Um, so it will pass 90 minutes of your time in a broadly entertaining way. But to be honest, I can't really think of a great deal of interest in it uh, or to say about it, so I won't. And I'll hope Drew can bail me out of this. Yeah, I don't have a lot. I think what you said, I probably enjoyed it a bit more than you, but for me it doesn't, didn't really go much above. It's okay. I enjoyed it perfectly well enough. As a family piece of entertainment, it it's is perfectly acceptable, but actually trying to find something interesting <laughs> to say about it is really, really difficult, I'm finding. So, yeah, yeah. it's serviceable enough. It's kind of an interesting idea, and it's actually... I really, really like the beginning of this song. It's perhaps the most interesting part because it's really mm. played well. Because I mean, I knew the film what it was about, and I remember the ship so clearly. I must have seen it a few times as a kid. Yeah, it was always so clear with the film and that that really cute sort of bat little 
that yeah, yeah, feature, yeah. which I really want one of as a pet because it's so cool. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember that sort of stuff, and I also remember the light speed TV time dilation stuff that explained why he hadn't aged. Um, yeah, I didn't remember the start at all, and I really liked the start because it's like. See, I I remember the start, but it was the start from a different film. (laughs) Does that count? No. (laughs) Obviously not, no. Yeah, yeah, there's like at least three, maybe more, fake-outs of aliens. And it kind of, it just builds really nicely, because the very first scene, basically, is like, you see this thing, you think, oh, it's a flying saucer. Oh, no, it's a frisbee that a dog's catching. And it does it again with the a water tower, and there's another one as well. I forget exactly the details of it now, but there's all these like fake outs. So it's like it's building for like you know that it's some sort of alien thing, but you're like, where where's this alien coming in? Yeah, and the alien doesn't come in until about halfway through the film because um, <laughs> yeah. you don't realise at first that the time has passed. It's like he falls down the ravine because he's he's looking for his brother. And his brother jumped out, scared him. He gets a bit pissed off, mm-hmm. walks through. The forest to this ravine slides down it, wakes up, and you think, Oh, he's, he's fallen. When When is this abduction thing happening? Yeah. And then he runs to the house that's his parents' house, and suddenly his parents aren't in it. And like, Oh, that's clever. Because mm-hmm. I actually, I really appreciate the start of this because he's, you get this real idea that this 12 year old boy, um, and again, he seems like age appropriate, which is a nice change. I don't know if he's actually that, but he's certainly in that kind of area. Yeah, I have no difficulty. Um, so I started going about it. It's a real bugbear of mine that people who are like eight hundred years <laughs> old get cast as twelve year olds. That this kid is freaked out. It's like, well, this is clearly my house. And to the point, maybe because I wasn't paying enough attention, but I'm thinking, oh, is he just gone up the wrong side of the ravine? It's the same house in the state. I said, like mm. identical house in the state. He's just gone to the wrong house. Something he's kind of freaked out, and then it's coming up. Oh no, right, I get it. It's yeah. later, right? That's really clever. Because you don't see the abduction or anything. It's like, and you only find out about it like working backwards. Oh, mm. that's quite clever. Yeah. I really like that start. And then he gets back to his house and you see his dad and his mum have aged and his brother's now like 18 or something. And like, oh, right, okay. And then so they just start doing experiments on him. That's where the film went downhill a bit before makes up. NASA's, yeah. a, NASA's a civilian infrastructure uh, organisation. Why does NASA have ready-made rooms that are for locking people inside and observing them? Why yeah. does NASA have that? <laughs> I, I'm maybe overthinking this film a wee bit. <laughs> I, I do actually, I do agree with you, actually. Almost everything on the film, up to the point where it becomes an actual flight of the Navigator, is much more interesting than everything that happens after it. Um, there's a lot of sort of interesting sort of science fiction-y themes and paranoia that are there uh, for the first, what's that, half an hour? Yeah, 40 minutes probably. maybe um, and that's actually much more successful and much more interesting than pretty much anything that happens after it there's some nice effects uh, the the ship's a pretty early example of CG that doesn't suck and, yeah actually uh, the reflections on the bottom it's flying over water and stuff I thought it was really well done for 1987 yeah, yeah. in fact the only thing it's not cracked and I can't really hold it in too much um, contempt is because we've not done it reliably these days either is the, the lighting when it's trying to do the kind of um, well, composite rather than back projected shots towards the end of it when it's actually flying through things. Though your lighting doesn't quite work, but they can't do that these days anyway. So yeah. um, a lot of it really does hold up, and you know the bats and all the other little uh, 
the little menagerie that they got inside that ship, um, all of that's really quite cool. The giant eyeball and all that stuff. So quite, it's quite interesting to see. Uh, but in terms of narrative, it just kind of falls apart at that point, and it just becomes let's fly this way, let's fly that way, let's do this, let's do that, let's end the film now, and, <laughs> and uh, it, it kind of falls apart a little bit there. But uh, yeah, all the sort of qu- the harder science fiction stuff, and perhaps in, in quotation marks, uh, towards the start, it's actually quite a lot more interesting than anything that happens um, in the last 40, 50 minutes. Yeah, because it's after that point I'm starting to question things. Like, like I say, why, why does NASA have these things? They're NASA. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would question the US Department of Defense or the military, I'm not told, but it's NASA. Why, why NASA? Um, <laughs> we spent a lot of money creating this robot that is apparently a trolley. <laughs> Can you just have a trolley? We didn't think of that. Okay, whatever. Yeah, that's kind of that feels less to do with that film. More just like a, it feels like a very nineteen early nineteen eighties thing of yeah having that sort of thing, and it goes in with like the is it Rob the Robot, the Nintendo NES thing. Yeah, yeah. it almost fits in with that sort of love of things because <laughs> the, they were big in the eighties, like the little robot that was on Glenn Michael's cartoon Cavalcade too. That was all very much of that time. Yeah. So I suspect it's fed in with that. Yeah. So there's there's the NASA thing which left me scratch my head and then there's the the bit towards the end to well it's basically the end of the film where he can't find his way home, so he wants his brother to show a um find him uh, show him like a some sort of signal to guide him home. Yeah. Which he does by fireworks, noted for their quietness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the whole point is like to not let NASA and the heavily armed NASA people, for some reason, again, NASA, <laughs> civilians, but okay, not let those people know that he's coming back. But again, they're in the house and also fireworks. How were you keeping that secret? And what was the point of keeping it secret? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's so it's kind of disappointing because for the first at least half hour, I thought it was really quite clever and interesting. And it kind of goes a bit downhill from that. Paul Rubens as the voice of the ship, Max. Kind of, it's fifty-fifty for me. There was uh, f- some of it was kind of just slightly weird enough to be entertaining, and there were some funny bits. And the rest of it was like, yeah, this sounds kind of like they let Paul Rubens just go wild on the microphone, and that yeah. never works well. That yeah, sort of thing. yeah. Uh, for what is essentially the focal point of all the last half of the film, pretty much, um, I was a little bit disappointed in that performance because it doesn't really say much or do much and I didn't find it particularly funny and I found it mostly annoying. I'm not the hugest uh, Pee Wee Herman fan in the world anyway so I I suppose it's always kind of going to be a little bit disadvantaged in that (laughs) regard but yeah, no, didn't didn't like it much. I think I've been aware of Pee Wee Herman but I'm pretty sure I've never actually seen Pee Wee Herman it's always like a a name I've been aware of, the character name but not know much of him. Yeah, it um, never seemed to really be all that much of a thing in Britain, I guess. I think no, it's more of an American so. uh, thing, but nonetheless, yeah. I've, I've somehow still kind of like, seen uh, his I've, big adventures and whatnot. I've heard of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Pretty sure I've not seen it. I've seen enough like pictures of Paul Rubens dressed as Pee Wee Herman. It's kind of distinctive look, I think. But. It appears to be it appears to be a franchise based mainly on that bloke in the bow tie and uh, makeup going. <laughs> um, <laughs> And that's it's it. It's not much of a basis, really, is it? <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, there are moments in the second half that I like. There's just that, the bit when they go to the petrol station in the middle of Texas, I think. Yeah. And there's this guy who's <laughs> the attendant there, 
big guy. He's just standing there with like the carton of milk or something in his hand. He stands rock still for like four or five <laughs> minutes, and it's like yeah. that's actually really quite funny and also quite well played because he, he doesn't seem to move for a large part, just sitting stared at this space uh, ship. Like, so there are wee bits in there that are quite entertaining. Yeah, but the film as a whole is it's okay. I don't regret having watched it. It's mm. um, certainly for ninety minutes or whatever. It's, it's about ninety minutes. I think it's reasonably entertaining. There are certainly some things now. I think. The reason why number of children are going to enjoy it, but I, it it doesn't strike me as something either good enough or bad enough to be worth the trouble of remaking. No, no. Um, it it's a fine film. I wouldn't necessarily dissuade anyone from going to watch it or or or, or, or watching it when it shows up. But it's I don't know if it's just been granted some extra cachet because it's got the Disney logo at the start of it, and maybe that makes it a bit more relatable to people these days i don't know um it's it is fine but i would not be petitioning for this to be watched by anyone other than those people who were around at cinemas at the time you know it's a it's a decent enough film and it's not aged badly uh but it's kind of unremarkable in a, in a great number of ways yeah i, I don't see a, that there's either a need or any kind of particular nostalgia to read to remake this but I, yeah we'll see what happens they're remaking everything so i suppose it fits in with that rationale yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's, again, it's not even something that, like, was particularly hamstrung by limited ability in special effects, I think, because for the most part, it's quite decent. Yeah, I mean, apart yeah, from a general... reasonably well. Yeah, apart from a general brush-up, I'm not sure what you'd, what we'd be remaking this for, what different story you're going to tell. Uh, I don't want to prejudge anything, but I suspect we'll just do the same thing, but with slightly faster graphics, and, uh, yeah, uh, all the central themes of this... Are really well are, are well enough done by this film that I don't think it needs any kind of remake. There's nothing missing in this film. It's just yeah, it, it is it's fine in and of itself. I just don't think it's really stretching um, any particular uh, boundaries. And yeah, you know, it's fine. It's enjoyable enough. But yeah, remaking it, well. yeah, it just brings us back mm-hmm. again to the larger question of why remakes. Yeah. Um, and for, again, like, I understand. The incentive to remake a particularly good or successful film, although again, I wish they wouldn't. Mm. It was like, therefore, why not remake the ones that didn't work? But again, it's, it's like right in the middle. It, it's fine, doesn't merit it for any of the two reasons you might really want to remake something. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I don't, I mean, it's a Disney film, so it will have a reasonable number of adherents simply by fact of having come from Disney. Yeah. But I, I don't think this is like a, a massively cherished, well regarded film or anything, not any more so than any of a dozen other films from the era no unless they've just got a they, they will soon have a streaming service to fill up and uh, the usual Disney animal would be to make a film and then plug it for about four or five sequels and I guess maybe they'll just do a TV sequence that's, that. that's probably it it's probably just a, a play into their streaming uh, <laughs> ambitions going forward there, there may be something to that Scott that <laughs> they would not argue against that not that I'm suggesting that Disney are hugely cynical and have a, a great command of what their audience wants, but uh, yeah, um, yeah, not for me. <laughs> so, continuing the science fiction theme with batteries not included, Drew, what's that all about? Well, batteries not included is a delightful little tale of how some cute little aliens, looking like miniaturised versions of the classic flying saucer-style UFOs, come to the aid of some people in a tale reminiscent of the elves and the shoemaker. Well, I say delightful. I mean horrifying. 
<laughs> At least when you add in the poverty, dementia, corporate thuggery, <laughs> immoral businessmen, sports-derived brain damage, assault, stillborn babies, arson and attempted murder. Yeah, but apart from that... Cheery, cheery, cheery. <laughs> in a plot point lifted from Herbie Rides Again and reused in Up, Pixar's Brad Bird, part of the creative team in Up, was one of the writers for this film... An unscrupulous real estate magnate finds that his plans for his towering new development in New York's East Village are endangered by the final holdouts. The tenants of the final extant tenement building. These tenants are the pregnant, soon-to-be single mother Marisa, Elizabeth Peña, artist Mason, Dennis Butsikaris, simple-minded superintendent Harry, Frank McCray, and Frank and Faye Riley, Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy the oldest residents and proprietors of the cafe house on the building's ground floor. They have been bribed and harassed, but won't leave. And now, with permit and tax deadlines looming, the developer has sent in Michael Carmine's Carlos, a thug who aspires to upward mobility, to force them out. After their restaurant is trashed, a dejected Frank considers leaving for a retirement home, something he does not desire to do, but considers maybe for the best especially as Faye is suffering from advanced dementia. During the night, though, visitors arrive. From outer space! Sentient, metal-based life forms who are looking for power and supplies in order to start a family. These little fellas are dab hands at repair and fix up much of the damage done by Carlos and his goons, giving the tenants renewed hope and new allies. As the cute little extraterrestrials help out in the restaurant and around the building, things take a far darker turn than you might expect, with revelations of dead children, now and in the past, fears for soon-to-be-born children, the difficulties of watching your partner being lost to the perniciousness that is dementia, the poor, elderly and vulnerable being largely abandoned by society, and, if that weren't enough, a greedy businessman willing to have someone's home burnt to the ground so they don't have to pay more tax. And not caring much whether or not they're at home when the fire starts. There's a bit more too. In this children's film about sweet little toy spaceships. <laughs> for the most part, the effects stand up. There's some really charming puppetry and models used for the fixits as the aliens are dubbed. And aside from some terrible fake photographs in the opening sequence, made to look even worse when juxtaposed with genuine photographs of Cronin and Tandy, married in real life for more than 50 years, the only real problem is with the matting, which, to be fair, still has the potential to look incredibly dodgy today. But it's a story that's compelling. It would be very easy for this to be corny or cheesy, and it's perhaps Dennis Butsikaris's tortured artist that comes closest to breaking the tone, not aided by the cartoonish take on his electrocution. But for the most part, the cast play this earnestly, with Cronin and Tandy adding real gravitas, and even Michael Carmine allowed to imbue the broadly written Carlos with a little depth in character progression. I'm quite pleased that we finished with batteries not included, though I'll admit that's not entirely chance, as for me it's the best film we've talked about in this episode. Like the best family films, this works on a level for children and a different level for adults, with some crossover, though given its themes and topics it definitely tends much more towards the adult side of things. By which I probably mean, cute little robots aside, this is probably horrifying for kids. <laughs> Though I have no recollection of that from my childhood, so maybe that other stuff just sails over your head if you're otherwise unfamiliar. So, what am I saying? Well, for me anyway, the best kids film in this selection is very much the one really not for kids. What a conclusion! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, before you'd put this forward for, for this episode, I, I, I guess I would never have really thought of 
Batteries not included as a kid's film in particular. I'm not quite sure why. I can only presume it's because I remembered it and remembered the content of it and thought that can't possibly be a kid's film. Um, but it's not wildly dissimilar, I suppose, from uh, E.T., which I saw. I also watched this part of this just to get a sort of frame of reference because, I don't know, there's always a part of my brain that thinks that E.T. is a kid's movie for kids and I shouldn't love it, but it is just really fantastic and of the films we've talked to, this is the closest that's in that league. Um, obviously, there's the, the Amblin uh, Spielberg executive producer involvement. I don't know quite how uh, involved he was with the production of this, but this is this is Spielberg quality, um, I would say. Um, let's not forget Spielberg's also involved with the Goonies, so it's not, that's not yeah. how it's <laughs> that's, that's true, and uh, <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Um, yes, but anyway, uh, of, of good Spielberg, <laughs> this is this is up there with it, to be honest with you. I, I absolutely love this uh, I hadn't seen it in ages, and to be honest, it's something I'd not even really thought about in a good long time either, um, which is a real disservice to it, because it's absolutely fantastic. Um, no, nor had I until that podcast I mentioned right at the introduction, mm-hmm. Scott, that's that is what had brought it back to mind. Um, and I thought, oh, I should revisit that. I was like, oh boy, this is dark. Yeah, and not just dark, but it's really, really well crafted um, yeah, with some yeah. really sort of really great character work and a really great story underpinning it all. And um, yes, yeah, it, it's perhaps a bit simplistic, but it's it, it's in terms of the the kind of overarching narrative, but it touches on so many kind of real deep human uh, traits and emotions that it, mm-hmm. it's it, it's surprisingly deep for something that is basically about aliens coming to fix things, but it's not really about that at all. And uh, it, it's a really quite you know, dark and twisted and complicated work in a number of regards. <laughs> and it's really, really, really good. I don't know if this is just us, but um, I... I really had not really been considering this at all uh, as a as a kind of top tier film in quite some time, and I think that's really doing it a great disservice. It is a really well put together and a really well thought out uh, bit of filmmaking that uh, deserves to be a, that deserves a lot of attention on it. And if yeah. that hasn't been getting it, then it really should. You said you hadn't really considered this as a kids' film. I did because I remember watching it as a kid, which. Mm. That, that helps a lot, um, and I remember little robots <laughs> and things. But I don't remember from all of those years ago the the other content, or at least the real kind of the tone of the content. Yeah. It's like, it, it's a film that has a stillborn alien in it. I mean... <laughs> Where? Is it, because, of, <laughs> because of the film, sorry, the podcast that I mentioned, I watched it again at that point, and like, cause, because I remembered so little of that that tone, yeah. the darker stuff, and, and I, excuse me, and I realised, oh yeah, this is actually really good. So going to it for this episode, I knew that it was really good. Yeah, yeah. why um, when I was putting together the the list of films for this, this was the first one in. This was actually yes, the one I right. really wanted to talk about because yeah. I knew how good it was and how surprising it was to me to find it. It was so good. What I'm just really pleased about is you feel the same. Yes, yes. that has really um, pleased me because I was slightly concerned. Like, oh, I hope it's not just me. But no, yeah. it's really heartening to hear that you've you've um, enjoyed it as much as I did. No, it's head and shoulders above everything uh, we've spoken to here. There's, there's films here that have that have really enjoyed, um, but they're just enjoyable films for the most part. Yeah, um, Jurassic had really solid, enjoyable, good characters, but yeah, it doesn't compare to this, does it? Yeah, no. Um, 
thematically and the way it's shot, the way that it's executed, um, the performances. Uh, this is on a entirely different level, and it is really, really great. And I'm, uh, I'm very thankful that you have uh, this has been added to the list because um, I probably would not have thought about this film again, possibly ever. Um, <laughs> Although presumably I would, because I'm subscribed to the Perfect Waste of Podcast, uh, Waste of Time podcast, but I'm well well behind in my listening, um, so I'll probably get to it eventually. Um, but uh, this is a really great film that deserves an awful lot more of attention than I'd been giving it, certainly. And um, presumably in that regard, if you're anything like me, you should be giving it. So yes, um, definitely give this a rewatch if you're not done so. Um, I I had definitely seen this film. It's one of the films that I remembered because I remember those cute little. Um, almost smash alien type robots and there's a wee bit of the smash yeah. alien to them yeah yeah so i didn't did remember those quite clearly but i just remembered like a still frame of those robots and going oh they're cute <laughs> and apparently nothing else about everything around it and uh yeah it, it does make it an, an awful uh an awful lot more of an enjoyable film it's not just a film with cute little aliens in it it's also a film with some uh, really deep messaging and uh, some terrific performances, uh, both from uh, Jessica Tandy and uh, Hume Cronin. Cronin, uh, yeah, really touching, uh, really heartfelt touch turns from all of them. Uh, as you mentioned, all even the the kind of minor throwaway characters get something good to do. The the, the guys that should just be the, the hired thugs, the muscle of it, even get even them get a moment to um, sort of try and redeem themselves and uh, become better persons towards the end of it. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, I find the film's actually quite hard on Carlos because yes, he's an unpleasant person. And he's he's intimidating these people to force them out of their home. But he's the one, like, when they towards the end of the film, when the arsonist gets brought in to replace him because Carlos has failed. Yeah. It's Carlos is the one that asks, is anybody in? Yeah. Because, yeah. like, the, clearly the arsonist hasn't, doesn't care. He hasn't yeah, actually yeah. checked. Um, and then it's Carlos that risks his own life to save Jessica Dandy and then he tries to do the right thing of like all this time she's been thinking that she's that he's her son mm, yeah and then that okay, there's almost a heartbreaking moment when, she, when he tries that to save her and she realises oh no he isn't it's like, yeah, ah yeah. and he doesn't get a break <laughs> at the end either so it's like this is a horrible thug character but I kind of feel sympathy for him at the end too because he, he's tried to do the right thing in the end yes Um, and then not once but twice because it happens in the the hospital too in that, mm-hmm. that incredibly touchy moment when she just breaks down in Hume Cronin's shoulder yeah um, it's um, <laughs> he doesn't get like a good payoff <laughs> almost everybody else in the film gets a, a satisfying payoff and he doesn't and maybe doesn't deserve it but there, there's surprising depth in there yes yes absolutely uh, it's uh, <laughs> it is really great it's, uh, it's uh, unexpectedly become one of my favourite films I, I will need to go back and uh <laughs> Revise certain lists that I don't actually keep, but um, <laughs> ah, yeah. I'm so genuinely pleased mm-hmm. that you've enjoyed it as much as I did. That's really like I was concerned about that. Not overly concerned because I know you've got a good taste, but um, <laughs> so I was like, like, I'll put this in here because I, I know how good this is, and I'm going to finish on this. And like, um, but I oh, know you like it, so that's good. That's yeah, no, good absolutely finishing off on a high, I would say. So that will uh, bring us to the end of this episode. But before we go, a few uh, feedbacks on the old Twitters for us to get through. So um, thanks very much again to anyone who contributes to our discussions there. Uh, more than happy uh, to hear your opinions and we'd love to hear more of them. So uh, just on the various films we've spoken about today, 
at Tom underscore McGee on Twitter, uh, thinks that if Mr. Miyagi was still with us, the world would be a better place. (laughs) The never-ending story actually ended, so what other lies did they tell? Case closed. (laughs) (laughs) To which the excellent uh, Beatmax Video Club uh, podcast at Beatmax Pod adds, (laughs) this is of course the Lionel Hutz argument, which is (laughs) up there with the Chewbacca defence, I think. Moving on to the never-ending story and at Hey Alley-Oops, who is of course one of the I'm the host podcast folks, uh, so so welcome to Ali's Truth Time. I hated never-ending stories as a kid. Everything was scary. The wolf was scary. The old-ass swan turtle was scary. The nothing was scary. Talk about a childhood existential crisis. Thanks, movie. Um, yes, even Falcor was creepy. Don't know how you make two cool things terrible, puppies and dragons, but they managed it. His horse friend dies of sadness. <laughs> Didn't know that could happen. Thanks again, movie. And last but not least, Moonchild? Nope, nope, nope. And uh, yes, that's, that's a pretty pretty good argument for um, disliking parts of Never Ending Story. At least it's a, it is certainly a very strange film in a number of regards. She also adds, uh, "The Karate Kid was fine. I liked Mr. Miyagi. I think you're probably probably underselling that point a little bit." At Blake Wrights, of course, also of uh, I'm the Host Podcast. As he approaches the mid-thirties, he may be falling into touch with the youth TM aesthetic, but I suspect that the core themes of the Goonies, youthful independence in the face of adult paralysis and labyrinth, coming-of-age responsibility, plus Bowie's bulge, are eternal enough to be fun today. Uh, certainly on the labyrinth part, I will agree with you. On the Goonies, we will respectfully agree that you're wrong. Um, well, when the themes may still be applicable, but the actual film is absolute <laughs> dog poo, so not so much. He also adds, was Artax the prototype for Bojack Horseman and the sad horse that sinks into the swamp every episode? Because I think that's it, that it is. And yep, that's about right. <laughs> Pretty much. I've not seen an awful lot of Bojack Horseman, but that seems to be more or less the case for Bojack Horseman. I have Horseman. seen none of it, uh, so I am completely at sea here. I have no idea what he's talking about, so I'll just nod, which works really well in the yes. podcast. <laughs> he's a horse that's Will Arnett. And, and a depressed will net. So that works. Yes, that will take us to the end of today's entertainment. Um, if you would like to get in touch with us, please do. You can do so. I think the best place would be Twitter. That's at FudsonFilm. Uh, you can also email us, podcast at FudsonFilm.com. So uh, please do so if you have any interest in that or what we're talking about next time, which will be the uplifting tales of Watership Down and the BFG, I think. Rabbits being murdered and giants eating children. Cheery, cheery times ahead. Yes. <laughs> uh, so join us for that and give those a look before if you would like to get in with the action on the ground floor. But until such time, take care of yourself and each other. I bid you adieu. I have been Scott Morris and Drew Tamdale has most certainly still been Drew Tamdale. Still a proxima. <laughs> <laughs>